Welcome to the podcast where we track down Australian war veterans, have a chat with them and hear their stories. I'm Alex Lloyd and this is Life on the Line. Survival is the rule of the day. My jaw was broken. I could feel my molars in the centre of my mouth. We weren't out there to take country. We were out there. At the end of the day, everyone wearing green is a soldier. Getting yourself blown up does some interesting things to you. Uh, a place like the Middle East is constantly There's changing. What we do there is constantly changing. We killed, though. And this, the thing was our own minefield. He hauled me up with a broken whiskey bottle and machete. Today's conversation is with World War II veteran Hugh Kelly. Thomas Kay spoke with the 98-year-old veteran days before Hugh moved into a retirement village. This is the first time Hugh has spoken with someone outside the family about his wartime service. Welcome to Life on the Line. I'm Thomas Kay and I'm joined by Warrant Officer Class 1, Hugh Kelly. Thank you for joining me on the podcast today. So, Hugh, to kick us off, what was life like before you were joined into the armed forces? Uh, my father died when I turned 17 and he was 37. And I got a driver's licence to drive his truck and the brother and I, older brother, and I worked the business together for a while. And when the war started, I think he went away. I don't know if he was conscripted, but I was conscripted. I had a business and a mother and three daughters to look after and the carrying business. And I was conscripted, so you can realise I might have been a bit sour. See, I had a business that required me to pick up eggs and poultry in the surrounding districts, and I had to do it at a specific time, twice a week, and sometimes I would make two deliveries with a truck into Sydney per day. So it, it, it was quite a, an outfit. I wouldn't say I ever made any money out of it, but it kept me... I had not a good lifestyle, but it, it was a lifestyle, it was a living. And I would work seven days a week sometimes with a truck. I've seen the time when I'd go, I'd take three loads from Fairfield West to Fairfield and deliver to the market gardens in the Saturday afternoon. Then I'd go to the pictures on Saturday night. So I was quite busy one way or another. Once you first joined, where were you posted? Chowder Bay. That's somewhere around about the uh, zoo area. Training was... Uh, I went up to um, Lithgow. They had a, an ammo dump up there. And part of my job was to look after the transport around there. There was about three of us and we'd do all the mechanical work which was required on the trucks you know, to keep them running. They called for volunteers or something, you know, and we could volunteer for special units if we wanted to, and I got accepted. So not as an engineer, as a fitter, you know, to maintain the equipment. Did you always want to go towards that line of duty? Well, I used to look after my own trucks and uh, tractors and that beforehand. So I leant towards that. I'd done a test as a fitter, passed that, and then they got me to service these trucks in Lithgow area. And after servicing the trucks, then where did you progress to? 
Well, it would have been showgrounds, I'd say. From there, I went to the uh, Chowder Bay, and that's where I shipped out from there and went to Melbourne to, to uh, become the engineer on the ship, the first ship, the first refrigerated hull ship that went to New Guinea to distribute the fresh meat. And what was it like going to basically delivering these supplies and fresh meat to the front line? A bit hairy. It's uh, in one of your records here. It says that um, there wasn't much training. You just pretty much no, there wasn't much training, and I never ever did drill with a rifle because of the uh, engineering bit. See, and they, when they made me a sergeant, that they gave me a pistol. It was a six years. It was that that long, as long as my arm from there to there across, and they gave me one bullet. So, so stupid, see? And there was no more ammunition available. Hugh came from a poor family, delivering fresh goods and groceries to help support his mother and siblings. He was conscripted for World War II and posted as an engineer on a ferry to supply fresh meat to the front line in the Pacific. They didn't give him a rifle, just a six-shooter pistol with one bullet and no other ammunition. So when you're given your revolver with one bullet and sent off to war, basically from the front lines, what islands did you go around with New Guinea and that? Let's go back before that. Mm -hmm. What sticks in my mind was the fact that they sent my ship out to sea about four or five o'clock in the afternoon out from Melbourne, Port Phillip Bay, through the heads, into the Bass Strait when a Liberty ship, a 10,000 tonner, was coming in for shelter. They sent us to sea. Had anyone on the ship seen service before? No, we were all green, I'd say. The skipper was, uh, he was the only person who'd had any service. I'm talking about on the water. He had a, a yachty's licence. Anyhow, when we went to sea, there was a gale blowing from the southwest, southwesterly gale going through the Bass Strait. Now, we couldn't turn to come to Sydney. We had to go into the gale, head on. Couldn't turn round. That's how bad it was. Best straight is renowned for bad weather. We had carrier pigeons to take messages ashore. Radio, which was closed because of the uh, Jap subs in the immediate area. So we just had to tramp. South southwest it was into head on into the gale and he had eased after about two days. In the meantime, we sent carrier pigeons aloft and they never got home. The weather was too bad. Couldn't break radio silence. So anyhow, we managed to turn round. We tramped back on a reverse course in straight into the states. We didn't know where we were because of the overcast weather. Couldn't see the sun. Couldn't take a sight. Couldn't sight land, and all we could do was reverse our course and go back anyhow. We'd done that for about two days, and we found the bilge pumps weren't working. The boat was making water. She got about 18 inches of water above the normal uh, level in the bilges, and it just started to come through the floor of the wheeler, the floor of the uh, engine room. So, as the engineer, I had to go down outside the, the uh, 
wheelhouse. The wheelhouse was well aft on the, on those boats, and the the engine hatch was in front of the of the wheelhouse, and it's raining, overcast, no sight of anything, no stars, no sun, no nothing. I went down the, the engine room and found out what the trouble was. The pumps had all got blocked up with sawdust. In the process of working on the boat, instead of taking a piece of timber ashore and sawing it and then coming back, they cut it in the wheelhouse and all the chips went down in the bilges and they got flooding the bilges. They weren't shipwrights, they were carpenters worked on the boat. The only way I could get the water to circulate through the engines and pump the bilges out was to use the circulating pump on the engine and with what I had, the rubber hosing and that, connect them up and drop a lead into the bilges and I could pump them out that way. But I couldn't use the existing outlet on the side of the boat. I had to just put up through the hatch that was all I had. I depleted on the deck and let her run over each time she, you know, she's rocking and over go a bit of water and everything. Oil all over the deck, we cut into the wheelhouse and everything. A plane appeared, two, two engine on a Beaufort bomber or something, appeared and gave us direction for land, gave us a compass reading. We got to, to land that night and cleaned everything up and cleaned the pumps and bilges and the pumps out and got them all working again. And we were in Sydney in nine days' time. And, and then from there, we just hopped Brisbane up the coast, pulled in wherever we could have a night time, you know, land. We, you couldn't travel through the uh, reef. So we were inside the reef. And we'd have to stop, otherwise we'd wreck it. So we used to travel only in daylight until we got out there. Eventually got to uh, Thursday Island. And we picked up a passenger there for Port Mosby. It was a yank. And he brought his own food, tin shrimp. Oh, God, we had a great old food, uh, peaches and cream, all the way to Port Mosby. After saving his hastily constructed ship from sinking and delivering his first cargo and sole passenger to Port Moresby, Hugh and the Meat Fairy got to work supplying the rest of the troops all around New Guinea. And that's when the supply of the Kokoda Trail, yeah, we used to cut the replacement troops down there and supplies and drive a mile wherever we went. Then we gradually just they cleared the island, we worked our way down to Millen Bay and uh, done the same thing there. That was our base and so on. We got round to Lay and then we got round to Finchar and then we got round to New Bitney, both sides of New Bitney. While we were camped in the middle of Finch Harbour, there's a wreck there we used to tie up when we could. Get bombed, we'd pull out to the wreck and Japs would bomb the hell out of Finch Harbour and didn't seem to worry about us or anything could see us. But anyway, I left there and I caught a lugger going back to Lai and from Lai I flew over the range to, to uh, Moresby and Moresby to Townsville 
and then down to do a school of mechanical engineering at uh, Liverpool. It took, I think it was about three or four months or something like that, and then I went back again. I picked the same boat up. When you first faced the open seas and the trial by fire there, did you guys feel like you could take on anything after that? Were you excited to...? That gale in the Bass Strait, if I could sit that out, I could do anything. But I was used to small boats, see, like tinnies. I've got a tinny over there now. And we used to get down to uh, Jervis Bay and all over the place, you know. So I was used to the water. And I got sick during that gale, you know, for sure. Everybody, you know, have a bit of a leap over the side. No, I reckon we could have taken anything after that. It was as bad as it could be in a 45-footer, 50-footer. I thought we were gone. And then during um, your service while back on leave, you met your wife. And I believe you overstayed your, your leave request. Is that correct? Yeah, that's right. So what's the story behind that? Well, we got married. I thought that would be enough to warrant a couple of days, Grace. But evidently it wasn't. I, I don't know. That. Was there a repercussion for...? They didn't like it. There's nothing much they could do. It just happened and that's all there was to it. I took a risk and I could have been severely, you know, it didn't take any rank off me or anything like that. All the trips back and forth, um, doing all the deliveries and whatnot, you know, the camaraderie with facing all of this, you know, being fired upon, seeing bombs dropped, seeing what's happening on the lines, things like that, were all the crew members tight-knit? Was it like a family that you were sailing with? There was only four of us on that boat. And I never heard from them after I, after the war finished. I, I keep looking in the papers, you know, see if we can see any of the names. It just, like, disappeared. We used to do four hours on and four hours off it, those trips. That's pretty solid. I found it was hard to take, you know, but you, know, you had to do it and that's all there was to it. It was a good life, but we didn't mix with any of the crew, other crews, there could have been a dozen boats in that uh, small ship section, all sizes, but we, we didn't mix with them at all. Just four of us just kept to ourselves. You'd go ashore and they'd give you orders to go sail to, and you took on supplies and fuel and away you went. Was it the first time you'd ever been overseas? It would have been, yeah. That's as far as I've been over to Selby's Island. haven't been any further than that. They'd be halfway towards Singapore, Darwin. When you got to Papua New Guinea and other locations abroad doing your deliveries and so on, when you pulled into the docks, what was it like seeing the troops ashore? It was pretty rugged. New Guinea's a bloody wild place by then, you know. What was the atmosphere among the men like? Oh, it wasn't bad, you know. Everybody was friendly, all had jobs to do, and that's all there was to it, you know. Hugh told us of one occasion where he and his shipmates wanted to create an extra mainsail to make the most of the wind. He went ashore to look for bamboo to construct the mast, and what he found sticking out of the sand stayed with him forever. When you pulled ashore, you know, one memory that remained is one of the beaches. Can you take us through that memory? 
This is on the trip down Pinchhaven to Lay. We went down in a, a pearl boat, a, a lugger, and we wanted to, because the wind was right on their tail, we wanted to butterfly the sail, put another mainsail out. And what did you see when looking for the bamboo? Oh, that's where we seen the Japanese arms sitting out of the... And the smell was terrible, you know. It was, I was looking for a, a good straight bamboo pole, six inches round and about 30 feet long. You know, I was poking around off, back off the beach and uh, yeah, that's where the, the battle had passed maybe a week or so prior to that. And they reckon there was Japs still in the bush there then, but I don't know, I didn't see any. Bulldozers all gone. What were the bulldozers doing at the beach originally? Well, they buried the dead, the dead Japs. And that's what you walked out upon in, in the bamboo? I, I didn't know they were there when I went away. I probably wouldn't have gone, but... If... And what, what exactly did you see on the beach? Well, you could see that there were some of the bodies... Half buried and some of them were well down, but I don't think they put them more than three feet under the ground at the, the best of times. But there was one arm sticking up that I do remember. It must have been sticking up from close to the shoulder joint, straight up in the air. That's what first made me jerry that there was troops under the ground there, you know. And was that the last time you ever, you know, were walking along the shore when you saw that? In Papua New Guinea? Well, it was about the only time I walk along the shore. Places to go to, jobs to do. We were delivering mail, we were delivering supplies, fresh meat when we could get it for them. But I do remember once we got a heap of meat from a boat, a Yankee boat, and they delivered the meat from a Yank boat with a barge. After they'd finished unloading the stuff from the barge, there's an onion on the floor of the barge. And I jumped in, got it. First bloody fresh onions I'd had the whole time I was up there, I think. But, you know, we didn't get much fresh meat. Have you ever eaten an army biscuit? Not for a long time. Well, you've got, you've, you've got to have good teeth. You know, your saliva sort of softens them a little bit, and then you crunch a bit of, or you get goldfish and tomato sauce or something like that, you know. The diet wasn't very good. It wasn't very good at all, but as far as the fresh onions, Jesus, that was like lump of gold as far as I was concerned. After stumbling across the shallow mass grave of Japanese bodies buried in the sand, Hugh continued his war of meat and supply deliveries. The image of those body parts, especially the arm from the shoulder joint sticking out of the sand, would never leave Hugh's mind. We went through his war records, but Hugh could not recall much more of his wartime service to share with us. Here in your records, or, you know, obviously Australia, 43, then you went off New Guinea, 44, East Indies, 45 to 46. This was getting towards the end of the war. Uh, you know, I was in Darwin and they asked me if I'd take over the chief engineer's job. They had to go to uh, Celebes Islands. And from the Celebes Islands, we got back to Darwin. That's when I was demobbed. That's about all I can remember or tell you, but you can probably pick up some of the dates here. 
Did what happened to your business? Like what happened job-wise when you came back? We might have had, say, 40 customers. They gave 20 of them to this bloke and, say, five to that bloke. So I had nothing when I come back. All I had was deferred pay, $600 they gave me. And uh, I was supposed to make a new life for that. Anyhow, we, we did. We managed to buy trucks. I don't know how and if we got them because I, I started off, I put that $600 into a, a manufacturing business in Sydney down at, or near Newtown somewhere, making uh, refrigerators or commercial and domestic refrigerators. There were, there were moulds had to be made and condensers had to be made. And I thought, yeah, it, it sounded all right. Well, we did. We sold all we could make. I had another business. I used to grow carnations. I had one of the best carnation collections of different colours. I did have the best in Australia because I had a mixture of about four of them. Well, I travelled all over the Brisbane, all over the place, Brisbane, Melbourne, Adelaide, you know, to pick up the different varieties. And I used to grow cuttings and sell the cuttings to well, one of the big firms in Sydney. They'd box them up, or we'd box them up and, and deliver the cartons. And they'd send them out to different areas, you know, all over the state. Did you ever stay in touch with anyone that you saw overseas or worked never, with? Never. I didn't try. I've often thought that I'd like to see them again. Once I left, I didn't know how to try and make contact with them again. Well, nobody offered to give me addresses or anything, so I thought, oh, well. Looking back over your time in the Army, how would you summarise your time with the Army? I was sour on the, the government because I lost a good business. I lost a truck. My... Mother, after my father died, she ma- she married again after X amount of years. I don't know what it would have been. I finished up with two acres of land on a corner, and uh, that's where I worked from and all my tractor business. It, it was a good business. See, uh, I can remember going for holiday, take my family, kids and all, we go down to Wee Jasper, down on the Bonejack Dam. And I'd come back and I wouldn't have a cent in my pocket. And uh, somebody would come in off the street and he'd pay me for a job I'd done six weeks ago. But I, I got by. They were hard days then. It was a good life, though. For some veterans, when they come back from serving, it can be difficult to open up and retell what they witnessed, retell their story or what they saw. Did you ever open up or... Um, tell anyone about no. what you saw? No, 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 no. Well, I've told the kids some things about it, you know, but they've got been at me. They wanted me to get down and put it on paper, but, well, you know, I'd rather forget all about it. It's, talking about it's not going to do any good. But I didn't think we'd go into this sort of thing. You know, I thought you'd just take a few notes, you know. It's the long-form notes, I guess you'd say. Thank you for welcoming us into your home and speaking with me today. Well, I hope you can make use of it and do something with it. That's all. I've lost lost a lot of it. I thought that, you know, some things come to me and I hope you can use it, that's all. Definitely a story that needs to be remembered. Thank you. Hugh accepted our interview request because he decided it was important that his memories were recorded for posterity. 
despite his discomfort and difficulty in recalling them. We are very thankful that Hugh spoke with Tom. People like Hugh are speaking on behalf of their colleagues no longer with us, and that really matters as time moves on. You can always get in touch with us by emailing podcast at lifeonthelinepodcast.com. You can also visit our website, www.lifeonthelinepodcast.com, which also has our social media details. And if you know a veteran serviceman or servicewoman with a story to tell, please get in touch. We would love to have them on the podcast. Life on the Line is brought to you by Thistle Productions, artwork by Big Cat Design, music by Dan Van Werkhoven. Thanks for listening, and as always, lest we forget. <laughs>